Hi, my name is Dr. Kavan Sanger. I'm a practicing doctor of clinical psychology and I also have a PhD in neuroscience. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm an actor. That's it. We're also a couple. And during the pandemic, we've spent far too long in each other's company, having interdisciplinary discussions and watching films. And like many couples stuck in an echo chamber, we've developed illusions of grandeur that our opinions are one, valid, and two, interesting to other people. <laughs> so we've decided to make them public, looking at films and their main protagonists through the lens of a psychologist and an actor. What motivates and drives their actions? What's film intending speak louder than words? And what things just really don't make that much sense? In our opinion, anyway. We'll leave that for you to decide. So this week we are looking at Shutter Island. The gothic horror drama psychological thriller some could argue yep absolutely and uh, Martin Scorsese film right we'll give you three seconds to tune out three two one half right okay yeah no I'd figure out if I did I'd count one then <laughs> it's one half okay so Andrew Ladis is a US marshal who chooses to ignore his wife's mental illness. Dolores his wife one day murders and drowns their three children he subsequently kills Dolores since he can't cope with this on top of his previous traumas, having been a Marine in the liberation of Dachau concentration camp. This incident makes him lose his mind. He's taken to Shutter Island and treated by Dr. Crawley and Dr. Sheehan for two years. As a coping mechanism, his mind has constructed an alternative reality where he believes himself to be a US Marshal, Teddy Daniels, who's come to Shutter Island to look for a disappeared prisoner. Because of Andrew's army background, he's very dangerous and has hurt many inmates and staff. The Boar wants to lobotomize him. We find out that Dr. Crawley is conducting a huge role play to bring Andrew out of his fantasy. This is where the film starts. He, along with Chuck, his police partner, but really his doctor who's playing along with the whole story, uh, just to keep an eye on him, uh, arrive on the island. The film sees Teddy being taken through his role play and his conspiracies are fueled continuously by weird things that we notice uh, by illusions he has. In the end, at the lighthouse, which he's supposed to be the centre of all human experiments for the facility, the truth is revealed. Teddy is actually Andrew, a patient at Ascliff. Next morning, Andrew acts like he has regressed back to being Teddy again because he can't live with his knowledge of being responsible for his family's demise and their death. He is then led away to be lobotomised. Themes that might be difficult for some people today include... Trauma, genocide, domestic violence and murder, bereavement and historical treatments for mental illness. It is a difficult film in some ways and please choose whether this is going to be an interesting and useful discussion for you or if you would prefer to join us on another episode. Take care everyone. So this was an interesting film to watch as a psychologist in... 2021 <laughs> um, the 50s were yeah not not a great time for my field really but I I do firmly believe that there were a lot of people who were doing the best they could as as we all are I sometimes I wonder what it will be like in 20 years time looking at how I support people in some ways, I hope that we've moved on enough that I do think that it was barbaric and there's much better ways that we can help people move forward with their lives than, than we can at the moment. I think this film, it, it does bring up some really interesting discussion points. I love that last line, actually. To live as a monster or to die a good man. Yeah. And I, I think it really then asks that question about consent and, and who's... Whose life is really at stake and who should be the one to decide what happens to it? Because being locked away in an institution, so much of his freedom was taken away from him. And that, yeah, it still happens today. Like, well, if all that freedom is taken away, then you have to create a, an, an alternate... Reality? Reality, yeah. Yeah. I guess in some ways, not that dissimilar from, say, Shawshank Redemption. No. I hadn't thought about that before I said it. Um, <laughs> now you got to justify it. <laughs> but those ideas of, of, yeah, like how do you... 
how do you maintain your internal freedom when so much is taken away from you? Have to create something or become like a Buddhist-like mm. in your existence. That very sort of compassionate but detached kind of approach. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. About like just a very mindful approach to everything to appreciate all the little details because all the little details would just be exactly the same little details as the day before. Oh, it's a little like lockdown as well, isn't it, really? <laughs> Every day the same. I had a thought about what would be the most interesting thing for me to talk about here and bring up. I could talk about the argument for, you know, what was going on for Teddy Daniels slash Andrew Laders. I Actually, okay, before I do get to my point, I would be interested to know if you had to diagnose him as a layman or you, you saw what was, you know, his symptoms, I guess, as you go through the film, what do you think was, in quotation marks, wrong with him? I'd say, as a layman, that he's probably suffering from dissociative personality disorder. That's very fancy words, isn't it? Yeah. Nice. I researched this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Nice. Um, no, uh, so as a layman, without the research and things done, I'd say he's suffering from some form of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Something brought on through that and through all the, the trials and tribulations he's had to go through. I think that's pretty great. Um, I think there's an argument for for that. So, based on his experiences, what I would say, from my background, and in formulating him, would be that he is suffering from PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, that too. Both from his, his wartime experiences and then kind of reeling from that, not necessarily coping very well already, um, sort of numbing that emotional response with mm. alcohol for the most part. And then the, you know, the, the difficulties where his his wife was also really struggling with her mental health. He didn't know how to help, resulting in her drowning their three children and then asking him to let her go. And his response was to kill her. At the time, like, so, they, they didn't know as much about mental health obviously no so for, no. for her to be crying out and saying like i need all this help but him being like not know where to turn is mm. wouldn't have been unusual at the time i'd have thought i don't know yeah and also what may have happened to her as well i mean you're thinking mm. about it still being a time where there were the big institutions he was probably afraid of of losing his wife of that you know breaking apart his family I don't know, I have probably a lot of stigma around that as well. Yeah, I, and I think that it leads into your point with the fact that they went to the lake house. Like, he took her out of the city and away from mm. all these prying eyes. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, then led further to her demise. Mm. But in general, yeah, just take her away from, from all those people, from all those ideas. Yeah. So I think there was a bit a big stigma there. And then, obviously, the trauma of that, on top of the traumas he'd had before, uh, yeah, he, he was really struggling. So I think PTSD, for sure. But then a lot of the the flashbacks that he, we see him having, the, the disassociation and the very strong delusions that he experiences. So these are psychotic symptoms. And what we actually know from a lot of case study research now is that having both PTSD and symptoms of psychosis, particularly the, the, the positive symptoms, so positive in the mathematical sense, that is, so things that you see, it's sort of like adding to your character. Mm. They, they happen together, more typically than you would see either PTSD or psychosis in the normal population. So they do actually tend to go together, interestingly. But the the delusions and potential hallucinations, so seeing things, hearing things, smelling things, for example, they're different from re-experiencing, which is a PTSD symptom. So re-experiencing would be reliving those memories, like they're happening again, which you do see because he keeps having those memories and yeah. re-experiencing of the concentration camps. But 
some of the more the delusions that he's experiencing that's particularly psychotic because they're not actually memories he's actually reshaped that reality so you've got both going on which is that's going to be confusing for for a layman (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah, absolutely like when you break it down i find it very difficult to follow Mm, okay there's a lot going on for him in fairness there's a lot going on in his head (laughs) good though it tilly get it right the thing that I found most interesting while I was watching it, as someone who is a practicing doctor of psychology now, is how likely would that be a treatment? This idea of like a really grand role play where he is allowed to take over the island for 48 hours. How much How much backing would you have to get for that? What would it be? It'd have to be like the Joker or something. No, that wouldn't be... Don't, don't do it with the Joker. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. That would just end up bad. <laughs> For everybody involved. <laughs> oh my gosh, the risk assessment. <laughs> oh my I word. cannot even begin to think how much paperwork. Like, you get annoyed when you have to do, like, just one letter to a doctor after a meeting. Let alone <laughs> <laughs> the amount of ridiculous red tape. Well, I say ridiculous, but, like, quite legitimate red tape that you'd have to go through for that. I only get annoyed with having to do those things because... The NHS does not give us enough admin time to do all of this stuff. I normally have to do it outside my hours. That's why I get annoyed. <laughs> so you heard NHS. Give more time for admin. And and pay admin better. It would be a lot of paperwork. There would be so much risk assessment. No, I don't think you could do it in this way. But uh, a technique that there has been around since the 1920s, and I did not realise that it was so long-standing. It's 100 years. Psychodrama. And I know that you've got a friend who does this. Yeah. Um, but psychodrama is essentially, it, it's a, a therapeutic technique where you reenact difficult experiences. You do it as a group, mostly. So you, you build up a very safe space and people can take it in turns to become the major protagonist. And you can choose to run through difficult thought processes or difficult memories or you can make it very metaphorical if you want to but but it has been used for for trauma and to help people process trauma in a supportive space before but never quite like this I don't think I I have done one session of psychodrama Um, it's very powerful actually but I've, I've I've never seen it done on this sort of grand scale. And it, it would have been done differently, I believe, anyway. In that you kind of, you can reenact the trauma. It, it's kind of, it's when you can identify the thing that you want to work through. And I think that's the difficulty and the difference with Teddy slash Andrew. Is that he doesn't know what he's doing is psychodrama. Because the a key element to when you're role playing and working through in a psychodrama session is that you reflect. And you're you're hundred percent aware that that this isn't real. Yeah. Because I guess that's one on a different level and two, it's a very different approach. Yeah. You ha- you kind of it's part of it is that you know it's not real because suddenly it's something that you have complete control over. So when you do it for mm. for a traumatic event, obviously that's something that you probably didn't have any control over. So this is about you regaining that control and right. being able to change that story. Although the other interesting thing is in this film, and this is the bit that really grated on me near the end where Teddy becomes Andrew Ladus again and he's talking with Dr Crawley and Dr Crawley puts a lot of ownership a lot of onus on Andrew saying okay we've had one of these breakthroughs once before and you said that you were getting better and then you relapsed and it's like I I don't think he's doing it on purpose but when you're developing this type of treatment, it may, it may have come at it from the idea that it was a choice. That may have been his understanding of it. Mm, I don't think so. I don't think anything else, for me anyway, I don't think anything else in this film made me think that he thought it was a deliberate thing. He wasn't like deliberately going into a delusion. No, but Crawley wouldn't necessarily know that. What do you mean? He? Like... Probably might have come at it from the point of view of, but from everything that I know, he then had a, the choice and he decided to go back in, mm. rather than it just being a... like an unconscious coping strategy. Yeah, definitely. Uh, 
I mean, I don't know. His dis- his description of where the psychosis came from makes it sound like he is very sympathetic to the fact that like this was a coping strategy. It's not necessarily like your fault as such. But I don't know. Also, you need it for a film. <laughs> need ma- what? Ma- it makes it ma- makes the film more interesting. Mm. Say, so, oh yeah, there's, there's the possibility that he could relapse again. Yeah, but and, I don't... And, and that leads, that leads at the end for you to be questioning, like, what well, has he relapsed? Yeah. Or, or is this, like, real? Because he's already relap- relapsed once and therefore it gives you the possibility that he is another relapse. Whereas mm. otherwise you'd be like, well, no, he's just playing it. Right, I see. So, I see. Yeah, it's so done you... from a for script writing point of view. Okay, for that, for that one final twist. Yeah. Which is one of the biggest twists in the last, like, ten years. Well, it was ten years since the film. It's just over ten years. But, like, in like, the last 20 years. Mm. It is possibly a bit predictable. Mm. But is th- I-, I still like it. No, I like it. And I do like the end, actually. I really like the end. I just thought that was weird that he was sort of putting the responsibility on him to... <laughs> To not relapse, um, which I thought was interesting. And, and sort of making him promise. Sort of, it felt like that. It was like, can you promise that this is going to work <laughs> this time? Because no. they're going... To, because the big men are going to go and take your brain away otherwise. I, I don't think those kinds of threats are going to be effective. It's all about lobotomy, but like... Mm. So what exactly is a lobotomy? For him to be lobotomised, what, what is the process? Okay, so you go in through the the corner of someone's eye with a very thin, very sharp, sterilised piece of equipment, a bit like a, an ice pick, essentially, and you separate part of the frontal lobe from the rest of the brain. So the frontal lobe, it's kind of like your brain's executive control centre. It's the boss. It's the thing that manages emotions and thinks through rational thinking it's in charge of kind of our hopes our dreams our drives and to separate that from the rest of the brain it quietens personality but it also quietens a lot of other things so sometimes they would refer to people who've been lobotomized as eternal children they couldn't really inhibit their actions that much either. They were actually quite id-focused, so that's like impulse-controlled, impulse but they were, they were quieter. So I think when you had people whose mental health was at a point where they were potentially dangerous to themselves or others and, and people didn't know how to help them, that makes everyone else feel very uncomfortable and unsafe so this was a way of making everyone else feel more comfortable and safe but i don't think it was good for the individual at all so there there was lots of things that was going on which led to them thinking well you know we've got all of these people who are violent who have unpredictable um personalities Personalities, Mm. maybe yeah they would they were dangerous to others or they don't obey by our norms for society what do we do to them or how can we fix them Mm. and it was starting to be it was this big shift and the rise of the medical model at that time so also they mentioned that andrew ladis was on chlorpromazine so this was the first antipsychotic medication we had so they were suddenly realising that there is physiologically something going on in the body and the brain and that they can do something to rebalance that or to fix it. So, you know, for him, medication was doing so much, but there was still a lot going on. And it's almost like it's a final resort treatment. Even in the 50s, they did know this was a final resort treatment. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like, it was done. It's a physical fix to a, a mental problem. Not, not a mental problem, but like to a... To a whole person problem. I think that's the thing. Yeah. Like There is physical elements to it, but then there's also emotional elements to it. There's social yeah. elements to it. There's there's environmental elements to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. They all come together, but I don't think we... We haven't quite got to that point no. yet. This film, it was interesting from lots of different angles, I think, from my side of view, but just thinking about 
this kind of psychodrama going on. It was it, it was cool to realise that it has been going on since the 1920s and that it is used for reenacting and reprocessing trauma with people. That would absolutely be done as something consciously done. Like, the person is a, a conscious participant in that, whereas here, that was not the case at all. Also, interestingly, for a psychodrama to really be effective... You do it again and again and again. So when Dr. Crawley is talking about how they did something similar once and then he mm. relapsed, well, yeah. Psychodrama's done for like 20 sessions. Oh my God. 20, 20 times that. The amount of red tape and that would just not be worth it. Also, like, he, he exploded his car. How many cars has he got? <laughs> I suppose that was one of the other things they also showed. Like, they did really cover quite a lot of the spectrum of mental health treatments they had in the 50s there they had sort of so occupational therapy was also a big thing that they did do so actually thinking about rehabilitating people giving them meaningful activities to do so yeah being in the gardens learning woodwork Hmm. cooking sewing art a lot of these things were also like they were part and parcel of the way that they thought about treatment then it's good that like even at an early stage in the 50s even at an early stage of, of knowing that there were things that, you, that could be done to help solve these problems that they still went with these as we see now good treatments of mm. like through art and mm. ways and means of healing yourself so yeah there's other things i could talk about but honestly i think that was the thing that was most interesting for me because i think week on week i will talk about Oh, you know, has this person got the label of this or this? Or, you know, what is going on for the... Does this make sense? Whereas, I don't know, I I was more interested actually in thinking about the historical context of the way we treat mental illness, really. Mm. I I don't even like using the word mental illness. I used it then, but I think it's because we're talking about a film where that was the way it was seen. It's difficulties with your mental health in the same way as we all have difficulties with our physical health sometimes. And what do you do? You go to the doctor, you go to your GP, you check if this is normal or not. Mental health shouldn't really be any different, and sometimes we need more support and sometimes less. I think it's a very nice way of looking at it as as we go forward as a society, in the way that we learn to deal with these situations and these individuals that are having these kind of problems. And he did have a lot of problems. I think a lot of the time... It's how much emotional support we have around us, you know, like our ability to to cope with stuff. So much of that depends on the love, the support, the the resources we have to cope with that. And he had no one. Part of the trauma was that he killed the last person that he did have as an emotional rock and kind of felt that he had to do that. Mm. So there's, yeah, a lot I like about it. But blimey, I'd love to see the mountain of paperwork they had to do. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. No, it would, it would break me out in a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested in, in your opinion of, of this film, which yes. I, I don't know. I think I went in thinking I don't like it. Actually, I think on analysing it, I enjoy it a lot more. But I think that's just the, with the way we use it. Yeah, I like that. Specifically. No. Nitty gritty. Yeah. You're the nerd. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm here for the nerds. Where's a badge? (laughs) Where's a badge of honour? I do. My computer also has a a sticker on it that says, um, be quiet, I'm knitting neural pathways. That's how much of a nerd I am. So I'm going to talk about how Scorsese brings his style to this big budget B movie. I I am a big fan of, of Martin Scorsese and a lot of the actors in this. It's not meant as a snub, just it's a better headline, isn't it, really? <laughs> it is. It's a very cheesy film, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's lots of tropes mm. that are used in it mm. that are used very well, but they hark back to the 50s, the 60s, you know. It, it, it is gothic horror-ish. It makes you think of, um, well, one film that I came across during my research uh, for the podcast after watching uh, Shutter Island uh, was was something called a Shock Corridor, which is incredible. Oh, um, just Google the trailer. <laughs> that was incredible. It's outrageous. Yeah. From so many points of view. 
Oh, I couldn't even begin. I can't be offended by it, though, because it's so ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it something like, the horrifyingly accurate tale of what goes on on a psychiatric ward? It's, it's, it's from what I know, it's 100% correct. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Scorsese very adaptly takes from the film noir and gothic horror genres, which are very commonly used and abused um, to make this film, whilst he combines it with his own picture portrait style that he has that you can see in, in so many of his films down the years. The reason that they're so commonly used, these, these genres, these gothic horror and film noir, is because they're actually really good. Mm. Like, that, that, that's the reason why things become cliched. E- either they're really bad... Or they're, they're very good. And I think initially in the conception of these ideas, I think they were great. Mm. You know, you look at, um, you look at Hitchcock. Mm. And lots of his things that he does that people repeat, like things like shots from Vertigo or from The Birds. Yeah. Like, actually, it's really effective. Yeah. Um, and that's the reason why they're used over and over and over again. Mm. They, they can be used badly. But I think that in the initial conception, the idea was is really good. Yeah. But the same is true of, of life as well. The amount of things that they sound so cliche, but that's because they do happen all the time. Or they they make sense and things do, you know, run a certain course. And it feels cliche, but there's a reason it's, it's cliche because it's used a lot. Because it's, yeah, it's effective, it's good, <laughs> yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, absolutely. <laughs> We started dancing together, and then it turned out we fancied each other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, moving back to, back to getting on the subject. Sorry. 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 Letting these people in on our personal lives. Oh. For the layman, and, and for me as well, because I, like, I couldn't exactly put my finger on what it is that, that would define each of these genres. The film noir was a post-World War II filming style characterised by elements like the cynical hero, the the stark lighting effects, the frequent use of flashbacks, intricate plots, um, and this existentialist philosophy and beliefs that was entrenched within the films, very prevalent in a lot of American crime dramas of the 1950s. You might also think of things like... I always think of P.I. films when I, when I hear noir. It's that private eye who, again... I think it, it's kind of like a, a war, a Second World War coping strategy. It does feel like it. Most definitely. A lot of people at the time would have been able to relate mm. to it. And a lot of people may have been experiencing things like flashbacks also. Yeah. And drinking too much. And um, yeah, being that cynical hero. It's sort of like it gave validation and permission to be like that. Yeah. Which is just tapping into the, the psyche of the, the audience. Isn't it really? Mm-hmm. And upon watching the film, you can see how the, the film pays homage to all these traditions. It like skirts the edges of the tropes, but doesn't like fully engage with them. You know, he uses like Scorsese uses the dark shadows, unusual shots from high and from low, plot twists, dramatic reveals. Um, meanwhile, you can see the moody psychological conditioning and suffering of the protagonist mm. of Ladis. Mm. or Teddy or whoever whoever he identifies as yeah, at the time in, in, in that one moment yeah mm. so like right from the off um, you can see we're in the boat with with Teddy and we're told this character is uneasy with the situation which in tow sets us off when characters look, in, look at themselves in the mirror very often it's because there's two different sides to a character and it's like a nice way of, of bringing up that idea very often we're made to feel uneasy because we're on water. Looking, looking at it very simply like that. Um, also, uh, sorry to break your flow, but the music at the start was so loud. It was very dramatic. On the Ramsey Island. Yeah. Yeah. And that really unsettled me as well. Any, any person like under the age of five could tell you this is a bad place. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. don't go here. Yeah. We actually stopped the film for a moment, didn't we? To like 
look at each other and think like, have we have we messed up the volume control or something? <laughs> <laughs> it was a little ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's that's something that. Yeah, like the first point I I would emphasize that could have been done a little more, a little bit more casually. Okay. Yeah, okay. but I, you know, I understand it's in this style. It, it certainly feeds into it. Mm, mm. But it was a bit over the top. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you meet Ladis next to him. You've got the the straight laced cop Chuck, the hugely underestimated Mark Ruffalo. I love in Mark this film. Ruffalo. I, I think I think he's great, and I also think in this film he's really good. Yeah. I don't think he gets enough credit, really. So right at the beginning of this film, um. They're on the boat together. We're set up with this film noir stock character. Mm. You know, you, you've got this... Very, like, black and white, isn't it? It's sort of like, right, okay, we have... Enter our hero. He's a troubled lawman. And you've got his trusty sidekick. And trusty sidekick. Also, the cliche trope of trusty sidekick, who he's never met. So we're meeting him at the same time. Yeah. And we don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm sure by the end they'll be best friends. <laughs> <laughs> they'll go through adversity together and bond. Maybe one of them will save the other's life. It's it, it's very by the book. Yeah, oh, not like like film by numbers. I don't know. Is that a phrase? It can be. <laughs> kind of here. There so we it's, go. It's very film by numbers esque. Film by numbers. Yeah. And we've also got. In the film noir style, this like setup of the good versus the bad. Um, you've got like Doctor Crawley versus the bad Max von Sydow's suspiciously Nazi esque character, who's very cold to patience, which is obviously countering to Doctor Crawley on the other hand, which is this black and white mm. idea. Um, mm. it's, this is there's one good and one bad. Mm. Um, who you know who will win? Again, mm. very early on, you meet them. You meet them both. Teddy sees sees it as like, well, these people are are awful. That you know they're here. They're for here for a reason. And if they're here and they've probably hurt people, then well, sod them. You know mm. he he doesn't care much for their their safety and things. Mm. Which is again this black and white idea: good versus bad. And it, but it helps us as the audience align our allegiances right at the beginning. We we know who we want, who we want to win. We want this Teddy character to win. Um, we want Dr. Crawley to win. You know, if somebody's called like Nazi-ish, you're probably not on their side. There's very few like baddie characters where we really don't have to feel bad. And I think zombies and Nazis are sort of it, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's as that's as obvious as we get. Yeah. And if, if we're harking back to like the fifties as well, like anybody that is a Nazi, mm. like would be the amount of propaganda that there was, mm. it would still be very, very present, mm. wouldn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's almost a little too obvious mm. who's good and who's bad. You know, it's nice that you know, we feel we feel safe that we've got like we we know we want this guy to win, this guy to lose, mm. but it's almost like right, well. You want a little, certainly modern audiences. We we don't just want to cheer for the good guy. We we like the anti-hero. Yeah. You know, and we want the the baddie to win sometimes. Mm. If you talk about the characters, like Scorsese, he likes these characters that are in films who who are just inherently flawed. We we see this throughout so many of Scorsese's films. They're very character driven, and many of his filming choices are driven by a character's emotional state at each moment. Um, for example, the use of shooting from a, a, a low angle or from the ceiling down to capture the feeling we're sort of like being enclosed in a situation like we see in the cells of Shutter Island. These are camera shots that are driven by the emotional state of the character to get the audience into the the same mindset. A lot of what drives Corsese's filmmaking is the visual images on the screen that tell the story. It's, it's just a different way of getting you the audience into the story is by putting you in the the uh, the mindset of a character so instead of just doing point of view shots which are which are all very well and good but which you use throughout this film but using different camera angles is, is a more 
I think, astute way, getting us into that that frame of mind. It, like in an interview, he said that the room is like is inside our mind. So when we see these cells with the camera capturing of four walls of the shot, that is representative of the thoughts and feelings of the character. At that specific moment, it's the idea of being trapped, mm. and uh, as a we. I'm sure you were going to talk about this at some point, but the use of prophetic fallacy. Whoa! Fancy word. Whoa! Look at you. Yeah, I did AS level English literature. <laughs> I know what that is. <laughs> is it the most important phrase that you could possibly use in English literature? At AS. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's how you get at least a B. <laughs> if you don't use it, you don't get it. No. So the reason that they can't get off the island is this huge storm that happens, and it gets progressively worse. And it sort of mirrors Teddy's state of mind. The, the closer that we get to finding out the truth, the worse the weather becomes. So it, it, it like matches and ties in very nicely with with his state of mind. Mm. Which you yeah, can go with. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite good. Yeah. I, I, I was curious though, because I was trying to piece apart how much is, yes, his internal kind of turbulence... And how much of it is real, because you've still got other people reacting to the weather. And they do talk about there being a storm and stuff, so... It, it, it's a film. It's like a piece of art, isn't it? Like, you look at, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci's work or Van Gogh's work. It's representative of... So you're not mm. necessarily telling a, a, like a precise story. It hasn't got to all make sense. No, it, it does have to make sense and to tie in. But he's using the weather to show that we're getting closer to mm. understanding. Okay. I think sometimes this is what I struggle with about films that, in my layman opinion, sometimes try and be a bit too clever, is that they're very clever on one level, but then they make it so it doesn't actually make sense on another level. And that, that does sort of annoy me Yeah, you, you have to like just kind of go with it, though. Mm-hmm. Like, to a degree, there's always going to be points that you just go you know what no and there's loads there's of course loads of films that you watch and you're like this is just arty arty crap like um, <laughs> so i think if we're looking like this prophetic fallacy is a form of visual literacy that's work and i think that's something that's paramount it's very important to martin scorsese he, i mean he's very open about his parents not being hugely well educated and therefore when he went to see films. He wanted to see the the way the story was presented. He wanted films and moving pictures to be made more accessible to him and others like him. And and with that in mind, then he what he likes is the way that your eyes drawn to certain aspects and moments. Like you look at um, you look at when Chuck goes to take his uh, gun off his belt uh, when when they first arrive at Ashcliff, and Teddy's eyes are drawn down to that. They note that he's sort of like. He struggles taking it off, but mm. not overly so. Yeah, I do remember that. What was that about? So it was like, um, you can't, uh, you had to surrender your firearms and Teddy just takes it off casually. But Chuck struggles mm. trying to like un- unbuckle it and he finds it quite difficult. So with that, I, I quite, quite like that aspect. And you can see Martin Scorsese's thoughts as he picks out each of those individual bits for the audience. I guess, what was the point of that? Because I remember watching it at the time thinking, is this meant to be a comment on his character not being as experienced? So he Or he's nervous? I wasn't sure why he was struggling so much to, to take his gun off. He's, he's never had to do it before. He's a doctor. Um, so it's like the first time that he's doing that. Uh, okay, and, so... Okay. And Teddy notes that he struggles taking it off. Mm. Uh, because it might just be like a voids. It's an unusual thing for a police officer to not be able to take it off or... Yeah, okay. No, he just notes it. Okay, so it's sort of a crack in the story. Yeah, it's nice that we're sort of left these little, like, moments. Mm. Moments throughout, like, you know, you've got you've got this, you've got... There's the a moment... Water. Yeah, the oh drinking my gosh, the water. the water, that really moment threw me. As well. But I suppose also, at that point, there was... Um, I can't remember the name of the woman they are interviewing... But they talk about Dr. Sheehan and she immediately looks at Chuck. Yeah, because <laughs> she knows that that's... It's him. Who they're talking about. But she's been told not to... Not to say anything. Yeah. yeah. 
So it yeah. must be very confusing for her. And and again with the with the guy they interview as well. Mm. It's difficult for him too. Mm. So the the stark lighting and, and flashbacks we see throughout this film are also characterise the, the film noir like genre, if you like. And Scorsese is very specific about how and when this is used throughout the film. The first edition of Dolores happens, for example, the night after he finds the first clue, but it's also an indication of Teddy's deteriorating mental state. And also, what you said before about the um, the lightning and the storm was after he stopped taking his medication. So it's as a, uh, as a, a consequence of. Mm-hmm. But this is a very similar idea to what was used in the, the film noir horror genre, this idea of this prophetic fallacy. Another thing that is used in the noir genre is the flashbacks and images um, and Teddy gets this in the form of his dead wife which pushes him closer to the edge of the cliff and in an interview Leo was saying that the cliffs are like Teddy's mental state and they get sharper and more jagged and, and larger as the piece goes on especially as he descends down the cliffs because he thinks Chuck's been pushed mm. and, has, has, and has fallen yeah I also think it's it's worth noting. I, I, I don't I don't know, but I quite like this idea that may it might be a bit far fetched. But um Dolores turns to Ash when he gives her a hug. Mm. Um in his dreams and he's visiting Ashcliff, the mental facility. Maybe? Uh, uh, out there. Possibly. Bit of a link. Yeah. I mean Scorsese he does love to labour his metaphors. Doesn't he? He's, uh, he's 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 amazing, but he does labour the metaphors. Possibly. Another thing to talk about in this film, if you've seen any comments or any um, reviews on it, you've probably also come across the idea of this fire and water idea. I think it's a really nice touch by Scorsese. And and it's him as well, you know, it's not just him, it's production, it's production design, it's all sorts. It's it's wonderfully sort of hems Teddy into Shutter Island which is the water, he sort of keeps him there. Like, that is the reason he can't leave, you know? Um, he can't deal with water due to how his children drowned, nor fire because of the, his wife's actions in their apartment. That's why mm. they moved to the lake house. Mm. But the quality of screenwriting and production value to each element takes it from the B-movie status that it could have been to one expected of Scorsese and the Scorsese film. I think... Andrew Block's reality quite adeptly, you know, with the water drinking moment, um, mm-hmm. where where we we paused the the film, we were like, wait, hang on, we wait, replayed wait, that like wait, three times. Where, where where where's that where's that water gone? And then again in in Block C, he likes a match for the first time after he's over halfway through the film by that point. It's the first time that he touches fire, but it shows that he's he's coming to understanding. He's moving forward with his with his treatment. And with his illusion, to a degree. And it's part of his overcoming. Um, it shows how driven he is throughout the film as well. To find the reason, the truth. Mm. Um, which is like something that drives his character. Yeah. I think a lot. It's just this, gone through so much that he's, he, there's only so much that somebody can take. Which is what yeah. we were saying before, wasn't it? Yeah. It's interesting, actually. I haven't really thought about it. But the the fire in the water thing, it's almost like... So the first danger was fire. So then he tries to neutralise it with water going to the lake house. But then actually in trying to treat it and soothe it, that's what that's what, that's what made it worse. So what do you do when the antidote actually destroys the thing you were trying to save? Where's your, where's your safe ground? Yeah, you've got nothing. Yeah. So and I guess you've got fire, water and earth mm. yeah in, in sort of like the in jagged the rocks yeah and the, and the island itself as well mm. in the middle of mm. this other element mm. so it's a very element heavy film it is isn't it yeah and I, I think the whole film as well as those specific moments have been beautifully shot and created by Scorsese and his team and um, you think of like the the cinematographer and director of photography Robert Robert Richardson, who also shot the Aviator, Casino, and Inglorious Bastards as well. You know, it's quite a quite a rundown of uh, of films, all done with Scorsese. 
and it ties in very well with the script writing for when Dr. Crawley says, when he's in the lighthouse at the end, and he says, why are you so wet, baby? And there was a moment that I was like, that's that's an odd thing to say. And then actually, like, that's because that's what he says to Loris. Yeah. Um, yeah, I assumed it was almost like he was trying to trigger, I, but I, I, trigger I, a memory. I am also aware that Dr. Crawley was just sat in this lighthouse for no reason. Like, also, like, what, what, why was he there? Because he was just sat. It was weird. I, I guess because um, they were keeping tabs on. They were. Andrew. I suppose it was all leading up to him going to the lighthouse. Yeah, right? but I, why would he just be sat there day in, day out waiting? So, oh no, he didn't turn up today. That's true. He, he would be quite a busy man. I'd have thought so. You'd hope he would be. <laughs> Maybe that's why no one got better. <laughs> he was just sat in a lighthouse all day. I don't know, it sounds, it sounds a bad, really. Mm. Well, it kind of sounds a bit sad, really. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I think um, a big part of the B-movie style is the editing can be a little dodgy. Rough around the edges? Yeah, should we say. And there's a couple of times that we, we on watching, we were like, oh, the odd sloppy editing, like where characters are talking but you can't see the mouths moving, for example. But this uh, specific editor for Scorsese is is so specific with the moments that she chooses. And when you get to the end of the film, you're like, oh, right, no, there's, there's so much which is either blocked out or is leading you down a path. For example, like the, uh, the water right at the beginning. It sounds like the water's much worse than it is when you look outside, which is you, then you realise, like, oh, right, no, that's just what... Teddy's thinking and feeling mm. is oh, the, the water surrounding me oh god it's awful and it would when you focus on it like that it would be so much bigger and bolder than in reality mm. so yeah that's something that the editing really really brings to this this film I think the production design in this is not giving enough credit either the set was designed by a former a former doctor who worked in like a, a facility in the 1950s very similar oh wow um, yeah pretty cool but it ties in with Scorsese's aesthetic for the film the overarching power base in this world is is the institute and that is what Andrew is also experiencing it's mm. like this this great big monolith on this island it's very daunting yeah hugely hugely so yeah um, and similarly like I mentioned the, the cliffs they're quite daunting also yeah it's always, it does I mean it is meant to be it's for criminals, isn't it? So it is sort of like a prison. Yeah. It does feel very reminiscent of what's what's the uh, what's the prison the really famous prison in America, Holly That's the one. Yeah, feels very reminiscent of that. Yeah, yeah. I think also like a big thing about B movies is that they pay homage to certain shots from films. They're taking the make out of like the, the Magnificent Seven or something like that. Whereas I think in this film, there's things like Psycho with the with the shower head coming on or climbing an arrow staircase like in Vertigo. Films that, if you watch interviews with Scorsese, he says they're like, just part of it now. They're like, really nice homages that he, he puts in the film. But they're not laboured, I think. They work very nicely with it. But overall, uh, I think that we have to remember that all art borrows and steals from others, and it's just that try not to get caught. Hmm. Uh, no, it's like that it pays homage to more than it steals, which keeps it just on the right side of a B-movie for me. I don't know if you know, I'm wondering about, because so much of this this film and the metaphors and similes and a prophetic fallacy and, and so much of it is about illustrating a chaotic internal mind. Do you know if either Scorsese or Leonardo DiCaprio, do you know if they've actually got any experience of serious mental illness or, you know, any familiarity with what what they're trying to portray i don't think they necessarily need to have that first-hand experience i think it's always really good to have it doesn't have to be first-hand um you know if you've got friends or relatives you can still hopefully if you've if you've talked to them mm. or lived with them you know you can still get a good understanding mm. so what would be a thing that you would change in this film I think the music, I think on that approach to Ascliffe for the first time, like, oh, God, that's a bit much for me. 
the initially 2D character Teddy becomes very interesting as the, as the film goes on but I think initially I wouldn't like a bit more nuance yeah fair what about you? Uh, for me I still it just grates on me that bit with Dr Crawley putting all the ownership on Andrew at the end that it's it's his responsibility not to let Dr Crawley down by still suffering <laughs> um, because then he'll have lost his war and his argument because he'll have to give in and allow another doctor to sign off but is Andrew like having he... a, a frontal lobotomy. Is it not like he, that's what he can hang on to? He's like, come on, Andrew, like, I'm telling you all the information here. Help, help a brother out. Give your clients all the information because they're a joint party and making any decisions. Sure, absolutely. But putting all the pressure on them to like, right, this is make or break. This is your last chance. You have to get better. It's not... Oh, you can't do that with anything. That's like, that is literally the same as going, oh, cheer up, mate. Don't worry about it. You know, you can't change your emotions like that. That bit just annoyed me. I, I could hear the desperation in his voice. He didn't want Andrew to have to go through this surgery. And he knew it was out of his hands. This was his last time he could be able to save him. And he didn't want to fail. But then he transferred that pressure onto Andrew and I don't think that was professionally fair. So I would get rid of that bit. I don't think that was... Well, you should have words of Seven Kingsley. Maybe I should. <laughs> I'll take it up with him. What's his email address? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll get in touch with Leo. I'm sure he's got it. <laughs> right, guys. Thanks very much for sticking with us and we'll be back... In a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.